Hey there, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Lord Teach Us Two podcast. I'm your host, Stuart, and if this is your first time tuning in, I just want to welcome you and invite you, if you haven't already, to check out the previous two episodes, which you should be able to find wherever you're listening to this current episode. If you are returning after listening to the previous two podcasts, I'd like to thank you for your commitment to listening, and I hope our times together have been encouraging and challenging at the same time as we've been focusing on diving deeper into the Christian life and its foundational ideas. As always, I invite you to reach out to me with any thoughts, challenges, topics, and struggles with anything that I've been covering, and you can do so by emailing me at pastorstumac at gmail.com. You can catch me streaming on Twitch from time to time over at stumac underscore streams, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at pstumac. So I do look forward to hearing from you and sharing your ideas as we uh, continue to dive deeper into the subjects that I've already covered and to offer or hear your suggestions for things that I should cover in the future. With all that out of the way, we are going to venture into this week's subject, which continues our discussion from two weeks ago on the issue of sin with a capital S. If you didn't catch the previous episode and are tuning in for the first time, then I'll provide a brief overview of the conclusion that I reached about sin in order to set up how we will approach handling this issue in our lives. In the last episode, I laid out the reality of sin in our lives by looking at where it originates from by focusing on need, desire, and will. After looking at sin, much like a virus, I came to the conclusion that the original sin was not rebellion, but instead a lack of belief in God. This ties in with trust, this ties in with faith, all of that that goes into really abandoning who we know God to be. This forms the foundation upon which our discussion is going to build in this episode. So it is important for you to know where I'm coming from so that you're not lost and confused about uh, the direction that I may be heading in. On the age-old question of what can I do about sin, I'm going to provide you one simple encouraging word. Nothing. Yep, nothing. Uh, It's a common held belief within Christian circles that there's nothing that we can actively do to erase the presence of original sin in our lives. No amount of prayer, service, church attendance, tithing, or any other forms of church involvement are going to erase original sin of unbelief in our lives, which is why something greater than humanity had to step in and handle it. If left to our own devices, we just would never be able to overcome it, and that was shown throughout the Old Testament as sacrifices were offered as a means to an end to begin with, but not an ultimate solution to that problem. When we build on this idea that the original sin uh, that is hardwired into our nature is unbelief, we're going to begin to find there's really nothing that we can do to deal with unbelief in our lives. And in many cases, this is going to come across as doubt. Uh, It's a problem that plagues us as a Christian or non-Christian, since events and circumstances in life tend to lead us to question God's existence or his good nature. And I use good in quotation marks. We simply have moments in our lives where we doubt the very workings of God, and as a result, it becomes an issue with which we'll always wrestle. No matter how far in your walk you may be, or how committed to God you may be, you're all going to experience doubt in your walk with God. It's just human nature. It's just what we're used to. It's what we're accustomed to. So we shouldn't go into this thinking that doubt is something we can fully erase at all times. There will be times where we're more confident in our relationship with God and God's abilities and nature, and there's going to be times where we're not. Now, I wouldn't be offering a lot of help if I just ended the podcast there, and as much fun as a four and a half minute podcast might be for some people, 
I think we need to go a bit deeper there. Um, we'd all be left with the same mindset of hopelessness as we try our best to just get through life as best we can. So I do want to offer some clarity here. While there's nothing that we can do about the original sin in our lives, we can claim confidence in knowing that through Jesus' death on the cross, his sacrifice has made it possible for us to be adopted into God's family, and as a result of his unwavering confidence in God's ability and his perfect system of belief in the Father's nature and actions, that it is that grace which is afforded to us through him. Jesus serves as our advocate on the issue of belief in God. In other words, all we need to do is believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and even if we do lose faith in God, we can be assured that during those times it's the blood of Christ and his confidence in God that keeps us safe from falling away. And we'll deal more with salvation at another time. Uh, that's a whole other subject and a whole other issue to look into about how do you know when you're saved and what does it mean to be saved and, and all of that. So that's not a time for now, but right now we are just going to deal with, with sin. Uh, that being said, I believe that there are things that we can and should be doing to help ourselves become more confident in our walk with God and his ability and nature to work in our lives. It is my personal belief that as we come to understand more of ourselves in relation to God, that we will become more familiar with God's desire in our lives. A priority in our lives should be to see our desires line up with his desires. It's to this that we're going to focus for on for this podcast, and it will, I hope, set a framework for episodes to follow as we're going to continue to dig deeper into the Christian life. And we'll look at things like disciplines of the spiritual walk, like prayer and meditation and fasting and all of that. But for now, we just want to cover why any of this is important in dealing with sin. So let's begin by offering some insight into what, we, what can be done to strengthen our faith and build our confidence and belief in God. Uh, the first section of this that we're going to deal with is going to be titled really Transformed by Renewal of the Mind. And anybody that has been a Christian for any length of time has probably heard of this passage. It comes from Romans. Uh, so we're going to start where, honestly, it's easiest for me to begin. Being the type of person that is very cerebral in the way that I handle everything, um, I do find myself thinking a lot. I think about ministry, I think about life, I think about failures, I think about successes. It's just a constant process for me to think and reflect and and try to piece together how life works out and how things can be done better, different systems and ways of dealing with the world. My mind's constantly going and trying to work out issues that I encounter on a regular basis. It's just who I am. For some of you, this is going to be relatable, while others will have an easier time silencing their thoughts in order to collect themselves and get back to a place where they're focused on where they need to be. For me, however, starting with our thinking patterns is the place to begin on the subject of dealing with sin. And for that, we can turn to the wisdom of Paul as he writes to the Church of Rome in Romans chapter 12. He writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Dealing with sin in our lives with the renewal of the mind is where we begin. When we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, typically we're going to acknowledge that how we have perceived the world and our relationships to it and in it are flawed. And there's going to be some adjusting that has to happen. 
This includes how we've handled failures, suffering, and other negative experiences throughout our lives. Uh, it should accompany our understanding that we need something greater than ourselves to fix all of that stuff and help us to grow in our understanding and belief in who God is and of what he is actually capable of. Along the same lines, we must be willing to evaluate and recognize what actual needs are in our lives. This issue, I think above many, has become more muddled over the decades, and I'd suggest that we're in the midst of an era where genuine needs like safety, security, healthy relationships, identity, and contentment are being replaced by more superficial needs like the appearance of safety and security, sexual encounters, feelings-based identity, and materialism. And we've shifted somewhere along the lines to replace one with the other. Even with genuine needs, it seems that a distortion has occurred where people are accepting placebos in place of real treatments to meet these needs as corrupted narratives drive what people think and believe about themselves and others. As challenging as it may be, we have a world where the narrative being driven is completely distorted. It's taking away from what God intended people to believe about themselves, and it shifted into very selfish, temporary, feelings-driven ideas. In order for us to return to true godly human development, we've got to make a commitment to return to what God really says about all these things, and this process of transforming the mind should begin right after an individual makes their commitment to Christ. We could make the argument that it should start before, and we'll get into that here in a little bit, um, but it's super important after the commitment is made that they're not just committing to say, well, I'm just going to be a good person, but they're committing to say, I'm going to study and I'm going to read and I'm going to learn because knowledge is going to be the first line of defense when it comes to things that we encounter in the world, especially the, the narratives that are out there. The problem that many run into is that they'll make this commitment and this decision after hearing a sermon or talking with someone and they're left stranded after the commitment's made without anyone to guide them and direct them. Uh, so they're going to end up moving forward in life with their lives not looking very different from where they were before, aside from knowing that they said, Jesus, I believe in you. It's simply not enough, and people should be guided into discipleship to help them understand what new knowledge they must obtain in order to recognize transformation in their own lives. This process should be encouraged by leaders in the church who have been through a similar process themselves, and I think this is where the discipleship process falls apart because it does take time, creativity, and commitment because it takes different things to reach different people. It takes different temperaments to reach different people. And so when we think that one pastor of a church or one leader in a church is, should be responsible for all discipleship, you're missing the reality of the point that it takes different kinds to reach different people. Let me offer a disclaimer here because I don't want you to have any kind of false impression of me. It is challenging for me uh, to face because I find that as an introvert, my social anxiety gets the better of me when it comes to more intimate discipleship or trying different things. Um, I struggle still with being accepted and being um, having my ideas accepted. So I have to be aware of that. And while I do recognize the need for such things, I in no way pretend that I do this well, but I do aspire to be better at it. It's still extremely awkward to engage in the discipleship process because you're opening the door for deeper relations with others in an environment where you are offering guidance but making yourself transparent enough for criticism in your own life. Then you have to deal with boundaries. You have to deal with 
where you're willing to let people go and where you need to hold back. Uh, it's an ex aspect of just Christian leadership that is nerve-wracking, nerve-wracking but necessary. Um, and, you know, while we have the example set in Christ to do something like that, it just, it's hard for some people to, to really commit. And when we add to that the time commitment, when we look at the process of discipleship with Jesus, the disciples left their lives and committed to following Jesus nonstop for three and a half years. This was both an honor for them and a huge sacrifice as they recognized the importance of being taken on as disciples of a highly respected teacher. In today's society, not many people are respected anymore, so this type of thing wouldn't always be accepted as, as an action of respect or honor. And so you have to wrestle with our current times. And all of this is going to tie into the need for healthy for healthy transformation of the mind in the lives of believers. As we follow, we learn, and as we learn, we grow. And as we grow, we should be multiplying, but more on that process at a later time. We'll deal specifically with discipleship and multiplying at another time. The reality is that the Christian life is not about blind faith. And typically, we should desire for people to be informed about their commitment before making it. After all, Jesus, in sharing with those desiring to follow him, highlighted in Luke 14, 26-30, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Now this insight does prove that Jesus never expected his followers to follow him blindly. He desired them to be informed and prepared for what was to come. While sermons can be effective in this to a great degree, uh, they're always going to lack the depth and intimacy that a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship will have, and it's important for all believers to be trained to seek out more knowledge about God and how he desires us to live. This will come through sermons, sure, but Sunday school classes, Bible reading, extra biblical reading, and many other sources that encourage discovery of God working in the world, including just conversations. Grabbing a cup of coffee with someone and talk about matters of faith, talk about theology, talk about things about God, bring up questions, wrestle with God's image, God's nature. This is all part of transforming the mind. And honestly, on the leadership side, a failure to guide new believers into the process of gaining spiritual knowledge is a disservice. And it's essential that we're going to put a great deal of importance on gaining new information in order to begin them on the path to developing new patterns. And this isn't just gaining information because, hey, it's neat to know new things. And as much as we like to amass knowledge, the reality is that we need to... Be willing to put that stuff into practice and teach others to do the same thing as they pass it on to the next person. And this is going to lead into the next part, which is practice makes permanent. These new patterns that we're going to talk about, which will go more in depth in future podcasts because we'll look at the nitty gritty and the, the in-depth stuff as far as disciplines of the spiritual life, which we don't like that word, but practices, we can go with that. But it is a matter of setting a routine and things like that in your life, but uh, we're going to focus on this reality of practice makes permanent. And in dealing with sin, why this is so important. Um, closely connected to gaining new information, this is where we put hands to the ideas. And it's going to be 
constant practice of spiritual disciplines. Actions like prayer, meditation, fasting, silence, church attendance, they're not just nice things to do because you're a Christian. And I do believe we talked a little bit in the first episode about the reality that you have to go deeper than just doing them because you're obligated to do them. Well, why do you pray? Well, because God told me I have to. You know, that's not really great. The heart behind it is missing. But they are essential because they develop a pattern of sowing to the Spirit, as Paul mentions in his letter to the Church of Galatia, where he warns the people there, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The only one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Paul makes it very clear that there is an importance of sowing into matters of the Spirit. He even goes as far to say that God's Spirit is pleased when we do those things. While he encourages this in the context of making sure people are taken care of, it's only going to become second nature to us by practicing it constantly in good times so that we are prepared when good times go bad, which tends to happen from time to time in our lives. If we bring this into a modern day context, many of us are familiar with fire drills or CPR training, things that we need to do for our jobs uh, that are practiced maybe every year, every two years, whatever it might be, and in work, academic settings, things like that, non-emergency situations, in order to better prepare the participants for the possibility of an actual emergency. The same should be said of the practices of the spiritual life. While we won't go into the great details we mentioned right now, uh, we just need to know that like those other forms of training, practicing them during times when things are going well should get you into a pattern that is easier to fall back on when an emergency does occur. What separates them is that unlike the fire drills and CPR training, you may never use those. And you hope that you'll never have to use those and take advantage of those systems. But from time to time, it does rise up. Spiritual practices are going to prepare you for when disaster does happen. Tragedies happen in life. Suffering happens in life. Difficult times and trials and all kinds of stuff will come into our lives. It's a guarantee. And for me, as I reflect on just life, the reality is I think while the death of a loved one or sudden deaths or tragedies are difficult to process, I feel like a lot of times that's the case because it interrupts our routine. It interrupts what we're so used to, and it becomes a disruption to our regular schedule. So by preparing ahead of time in prayer, in meditation, in fasting, when these things do occur, we'll be prepared to handle them. And it only comes through sowing into the Spirit. That way, when we are challenged, we're not going to need to be so worried about how to deal with them because the Spirit, who we've built a strong relationship with, will bring to mind what needs to be done in that moment. When I was in high school, I had a band teacher who, as a believer, recognized that nothing in life that we do is going to be perfect, especially not high school band. Um, we would practice basics every year during our, our summer band camps, not just because of new students coming in because sometimes you just have to keep reviewing those basics that would help us become better acquainted with them and you know i wasn't the greatest student when it came to that type of stuff because i wouldn't practice that stuff at home but what it was meant to do is drive those ideas and 
plans into our heads so that when we're faced with those situations, we would just fall back to the basics. And instead of saying practice makes perfect, which is the normal adage, he would state practice makes permanent. And so just like with band practice and whatever else you may be practicing, the point of the disciplines is not to become perfect at them, but to make them a regular part of your normal routine. Sowing to the Spirit is the same thing. In no way do they eliminate sins in our lives and make us perfect in our behavior, but they should, when done rightly, instill within us a pattern that keeps us focused on God above all things. These habits can become permanent fixtures in our lives, and it's going to be up to us to ensure that we put heart into them each day as we practice them in order to keep them from becoming stale. And that can happen. We'll talk a bit about legalism and the issues there at a future time. By practicing these regularly, they're going to awaken in us a yearning for God each day as the Spirit works to maintain that relationship. You see, one thing we have to recognize is that God is always interested in the relationship with us. He's constantly chasing after us. He's constantly wanting to be part of our lives and our our daily activities. He desires us to be in communion with him each day. This yearning should be reciprocal. It should be give and take. It's something that we should be desiring as well. And by participating in the practices, as we sow into the spirit, they will become like reflex actions. In relation to sin, these practices should also help us in being reminded constantly of God's desire for us to be holy or set apart and committed to him in all of our actions and decisions. We're also going to focus on hope for the best and prepare for the worst. This is just the reality of life. The final thing we need to focus on is that we have to set boundaries for ourselves, but we don't want to put everything into those boundaries. This is where legalism ends up setting setting us up for failure. Like when you're struggling with a particular addiction or, or sin, you've got to have boundaries in your life. Places you won't go, people you won't hang out with, situations you won't put yourself in intentionally in order to be tempted, in order to stray. We have to go forward in life hoping for the best for ourselves, but recognizing that life is what life is. As you're starting on the journey towards spiritual depth, don't expect to be perfect right at the start. If you're new to your walk and you're excited and you're trying to do things right, don't be discouraged if you mess up from time to time. It is going to take time to develop new reflexes to old pressures, and you've got to give yourself some grace, just as God is giving you grace. But we have to be careful to look for balance. We can't go to one extreme and justify continuing in bad habits because, oh, well, God will forgive me. With that mindset, he's not. He's not going to forgive you because there's no heart behind your repentance. There's no heart behind your desire to change. We also don't want to go to the other extreme of setting limitations and burdens on ourselves that we're incapable of carrying those burdens because it's going to put us in a position of worshiping our own ability to handle problems without turning to God. This is what Jesus himself condemned the Pharisees on. In Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster speaks of this type of thing as will worship. In this, he refers to Paul's letter to the Church of Colossae when he writes in the second chapter in verses 20 through 23, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
These are destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in retaining sensual indulgence. This gets to the heart of sinfulness in humanity. The fact is, the issue with sin is so much deeper than just what we're doing. It goes right down to our core. It goes right down to the reality that because we refuse to trust God enough to provide for our needs, to provide for what our necessities in our lives, actions are going to come out. Desires are going to be manifested and wills are going to be acting on those desires. And this is the idea behind will worship, what Paul says. He says, while it's, or, while it's important for us to stop certain behaviors, it's understandable to accept that we're not, we'll not stick with it 100% of the time. When I used to counsel men in addiction, I'd talk with them about the reality that for many of them, relapse is part of recovery. While the desire is always there to say that none of them will fall back into their old ways, this was the way of teaching them that they needed to understand grace in their lives. And you can disagree with me in that reality because I understand with drug addiction, the next one could be the last one. I, I recognize that as well. Um, but while the hope is there, and while our desire is that they don't fall back into it, the reality is for a lot of them that they only learn how to properly apply what they've been working on through failure. Failure is not the end of the world, and relapse and old habits are not necessarily a death sentence. What's actually the fatal blow is the next decision you make after a failure. Do you seek help that you need? Do you reach out to a rehab? Do you reach out to a sponsor? Do you reach out to an accountability partner? And for this, uh, one of my favorite proverbs is 2416. And Solomon writes, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. The truth is essential to understanding the grace that God shows in our lives. The fact is, we're not going to do things perfectly. Jesus even teaches his disciples when they're asking a question about forgiveness. And they say, well, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Is it seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. It means that there has to be a willingness to show grace to ourselves and to one another. That reality that God's not going to give up on us, so we shouldn't give us up on us either. By reminding ourselves that we will fall from time to time, it's going to prevent us from worshiping our will as being more powerful than God. We recognize our weakness and inability to form new patterns and strengthen our belief apart from God. And understand that at our weakest moments, flaws that had laid dormant or hidden will come out. And that's the reality is that when you're weakest, who you are is going to come to the forefront at those unguarded moments, at those times when... You think you're doing really well, but then, and so your guards let down, and then who you are will come out, as much as we try to hide it. At the end of the day, we've got to come back to the reality that it's only by God's grace and the shedding of his son's blood that we're even capable of seeing our lives transform into likenesses of him. Our failures should always be used to turn us back to God's glory. Paul knew this as he boasted in his own weaknesses, for he recognized and taught this to the church in Corinth when he writes in 1 Corinthians 9.10, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this isn't to say that 
Paul himself is strong, it's to say that in those moments where things are really going bad, God's strength kicks in, and I'm able to rely on that to make it through. It's only going to come after he had affirmed to him that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul knew that the strength of God was only granted to him in moments of weakness, thus making him strong during those times. It's not our own strength. It's when we rely upon God and recognize that he's doing the work. He's the one that's stepping into our lives and helping us out. The reality of sin is that there's nothing you can do to stop yourself from having that nature in your lives. No matter what we may do, we can't erase that. It's part of who we are. It's a reality of our existence. And we have to just accept that as fact. We also have to recognize that only God can do the work that's needed to eliminate sin. And that work has been done through Jesus Christ if we choose to accept the gift that's available. What you can do, however, is work towards being more informed and more active in improving your relationship with God so that you're better prepared for those times when doubt creeps in. Those are those moments of tragedy, of difficulty, where it's easy to question God. If you're pouring into the Spirit, as Paul says, then you're going to reap the Spirit. And in matters of persecution and in matters of trials, um, this is the exact reason why, you know, the disciples and others were warned to say, you know, in those moments you don't have to worry about what words you'll use, for the Spirit will speak on your behalf. Don't beat yourself up. You know, we all go through trials. We all go through difficulties. No one is perfect. While we've covered quite a bit here, I do hope that this has offered you some kind of insight into how to best begin your journey of dealing with sin. Accept that capital S sin is a reality, but also accept that Christ died on the cross. So that victory is won. And moving forward in life as a believer, work on transforming your mind. Work on developing patterns in order to better fight off those temptations and attacks from the enemy. And while it's difficult to deal with this reality that there's nothing we can do to remove capital S sin from our internal structure, we can take full confidence in knowing that Jesus sacrificing himself for our sake, the debt's been paid, and we can build a stronger belief in God through his guiding and working in our lives. Let's take some time here and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Father, we acknowledge that in our own lives that we're going to struggle with our belief in you. We're going to struggle in trials, difficulties, challenges. But we can offer gratitude in knowing that you are working and you are committed to us. So, Father, I pray that we would all do what we can to be better committed to you. Father, help us to recognize your grace and to accept it and to show that in our own lives to ourselves and to others. And Father, as we're going throughout this week, I pray that we would all do better in pouring into the Spirit and sowing into the Spirit so that when times do get tough, like a reflex action in our lives, we can fall back on these practices to know that you're there. So Father, thank you. And we just praise you for all that you're doing. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, everyone, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And in two weeks, we are going to begin to dive deeper into the spiritual disciplines by examining the life-giving possibilities that they bring, as well as the pathway to death that they can also lead us on if we're not careful in how we practice them. Until then, thank you so much for listening. And as always, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Blessings to you all.